Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, July 16th, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 35, verses 1 to 19. The Lord sends Jeremiah to speak to the Rechabites concerning their faithfulness to a command given by their father in order to highlight the unfaithfulness of the people of Judah to the commands given to them by the Lord. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you again. It's an honor to study God's word with you today. We are in Jeremiah chapter 35 today, Pastor Andrews. Jeremiah tells us that this is going to happen in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. What should we know about his reign that helps us with the context and anything else concerning the ministry of Jeremiah, what he's been doing in his book so far that helps us with chapter 35 today? The work of the prophet here is is the focus. So we're given that detail, the days of Jehoiakim, simply to help us put a date to the text to when this is actually occurring. Jehoiakim is is not involved in our reading today whatsoever. Um, he is king over Judah, so the southern kingdom, and he doesn't even begin his reign until after, several years after the, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been destroyed. Uh, Jehoiakim himself probably reigns from about 609 until 598 BC. And he is described, as you look over at the book of 2 Kings chapter, well, technically chapter 23, the final verse of chapter 23 says, he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his fathers had done. So Jehoiakim, just to, to focus on the history and context here a little more, that's not his original name. Um, his parents had named him Eliakim. He was the son of King Josiah, who was one of it, Judah's faithful kings. They end up having a couple more evil kings than they do good kings. Uh, but Josiah is really that last good, faithful king who tears down all the altars that his his forefathers had built and worshipped at. But when he gets killed by Egypt's pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho, the people make his brother the king, but Nico deposes him after just three months, takes him up to Ribla, which is about 100 miles north of Damascus, as a prisoner, and he installs Eliakim to be the king over Judah. And I guess as a constant reminder of who's really in charge, Nico renames Eliakim. Uh, he changes his name to Jehoiakim. So Jehoiakim is on the throne at this time. As you said, he doesn't really factor into the text that we've got today. He will in, in the next text. And and every time we see Jehoiakim actually do something in the book of Jeremiah, it, it's usually something pretty bad. He's he's kind of a thorn in Jeremiah's side. He does not, Jehoiakim does not like what Jeremiah has to say. We're going to see that quite 
quite explicitly in the next chapter where Jehoiakim is actually going to burn some of the scroll of, or all the scroll of Jeremiah and Jeremiah is going to, to have it rewritten. So Jehoiakim is, is an evil king, as you said. He's put in place by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt as a, a puppet king of sorts. He's kind of got a, a back and forth relationship with these other world powers and and for a while gets on the, the good side of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who's the rising world power of the day, and then rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And, and probably it's around that time of that one of those rebellions against Nebuchadnezzar that we're going to see the, the text that we've got for today taking place. But again, that's not necessarily... That's all in the background. That doesn't necessarily play into what happens in the text today as we hear Jeremiah preach. Any other introductory thoughts on chapter 35 before we start digging into the text? Well, historically, we are rewinding. So our previous chapter 34 dealt with King Zedekiah, who is the final king to sit on the throne of Judah before Babylon destroys it. So Jeremiah, not sticking to a straight chronology here, has has taken us back in order to illustrate what he needs to illustrate for us. Yeah, we've, we've seen that throughout the book of Jeremiah, that he's not strictly chronological, but the texts often do relate from one part to, the, to another. So we're going to see a, a picture of the rebellion, the disobedience of the, of the people to the Lord, and Jeremiah is going to be given a, a, an object lesson of that. And this time it's not a, an object like a clay pot, as we've seen previously, but the object lesson is going to be an actual group of people, these Rechabites. So let's, let's see what starts to happen in the text. We're in Jeremiah chapter 35 today. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Masiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. But they answered, we will drink no wine, for John Adab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem. That's through verse 11 of our text, Pastor Andrews. I'll pause there. That's the the opening scene. Jeremiah is told by the Lord to go to the house of the Rechabites. And he wants to talk to them. Let's let's start by digging in a little bit to who these Rechabites are. What do we know about the Rechabites from Scripture? So the Rechabites, as the name suggests, are the people of Rechab, and we saw his name show up in verse 6 there. So the 
for those of you who have a Lutheran study Bible at home, it, it tells us that we can think of these people as being Kenites, and they connect us there to First Chronicles chapter 255 for that reference. And so the Kenites are a nomadic people, which means they don't really have cities to dwell in. They don't make one permanent place their home, but rather they they wander, they travel, and they tend to live in something like a tent when you're when you're nomadic because it's easy to take it down and, and take it with you and then set it up wherever you stop. And so we we know a little about the Kenites, although not very much. We see them for the first time showing up in Genesis chapter 15. We know uh, as you get to the book of Judges, we learn that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was a part of the Kenites. And so if, his, if Moses' father-in-law was, that means also Moses' wife, Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, would have been a Kenite as well. As far as I can tell from Scripture, the Kenites seem to stay in pretty good terms, have good relations with the people of God. Yeah, that I, I think you're. I think you're right about that. So a, a couple of things. First, that First Chronicles two passage, First Chronicles two fifty five. Just to to read that so that we have that in our minds. States at the very end of that verse that these are the Kenites who came from Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. So there's the the connection between the Kenites and the Rechabites. A, a couple of things stand out about the Kenites to me in some of these these issues that we're talking about. One is that. That very first time they show up in Genesis chapter 15, that's where the Lord is is speaking to Abraham. He's reiterating his promise. And, and there in Genesis 15, the Lord promises Abram, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites. There they are, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and, and so forth. That list of people who previously owned the land of Canaan. So the Kenites are, are listed among those groups, which we know some of them are quite hostile to the to the people of Israel in their history. The Kenites, it seems, are not. The reason I think that, that that's significant, and, and you can tell me what you think, Pastor Andrews, because they do seem to be friendly. But as far as I can tell, it, it doesn't seem that the Kenites are related to the people of Israel, at least not like, you know, I mean, the Ammonites, the Moabites, some of these other neighbors of Israel, they're actually related. But as far as I can tell, the people of Israel aren't aren't related to the people of of the Kenites. At least, I mean, you know, we could take everybody back, back to Noah, I suppose. But right. as far as I, I don't know, did you find anything about how they are or aren't related to the Israelites? No, I don't know how we could trace their origin back any further. Like you said, yeah, all the way back to Noah, uh, before that, all the way back to Adam and Eve. There, there's connections, of course, but um, I don't see anything outside of them just first showing up here that would help us to build that, I guess, build that bridge, that family tree uh, more, more strongly. Uh, the reason I think that that's significant, at least to have in our minds, is because Jeremiah is going, as we will see, Jeremiah is going to set up the Rechabites as a positive example for the people of Judah. And so to use someone who, to whom they're not related Someone, although they're on friendly terms with them, perhaps it's going to maybe sting a little bit, I think, for the people of Judah to have the Rechabites set up as a positive example when the people of Judah are going to hear a stinging rebuke from the Lord. So I think that's that's worth noting. Some other thoughts on the on the Rechabites. You know, we see them at, at a variety of times. If 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 any of you know our, our regular listeners 
if you if you recall from the book of Exodus or the book of Judges, some of those connections to the Moses' father-in-law, that's where I, I'm, I think we might have talked about this on Sharper Iron before. Someone can can check that on me if they'd like and go back to like, oh, Exodus chapter 18 and maybe Judges 1 and Judges 4, some of the places where you get this, this Kenite connection to Moses' father-in-law. Uh, there's another interesting one. I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about this, Pastor Andrews. In 2 Kings chapter 10, where we we find out a little bit about this Jonadab, who's the father that's specifically mentioned later on in the text. What do we know about him from elsewhere in Scripture? Right. So we have Jehonadab, or as we see him mentioned in verse 6, just Jonadab. So the name gets shortened. We can talk about that too. But he is son of Rechab. And he allies himself in 2 Kings chapter 10 with Jehu. For those of you that don't recall the account with Jehu, Jehu is a commander in the army. And a prophet comes to Jehu, anoints him king over Israel because God has commanded the prophet to do so. And then Jehu returns and he assassinates or kills, whichever word you prefer, both the Israelite king, Joram, and the Judean king, Ahaziah. And it's after this, it's after that act of that execution, as Jehu is riding on a chariot, that he comes across Jehonadab, and he, he reaches out his hand and invites him, if Jehonadab will be loyal and faithful, to join him in his chariot. So he does. He, he steps up in with him, with the king, and he goes on to help Jehu carry out the destruction of Ahab's entire house. So Ahab is a previous king over the nation of Israel. And Ahab is, well, maybe one of the things we know most about Ahab is the name of his wife, Jezebel. So the very evil king and a very evil bride. And they were Baal worshippers. Um, we learn that Jezebel had the prophets of Baal eating at her table, for example. And so the Lord chose in his judgment to wipe out the entire house of Ahab. And Jehu becomes the instrument to do that. And again, with Jehonadab at his side, um, working to eliminate the rest of the house, as well as the, the, the remaining prophets of Baal. So oftentimes to see destruction like that, would come across for us, I think, as being violent, being wrong. But in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, Yahweh actually gives his direct approval of it because they were carrying out his decree of judgment. God does grant the power of the sword to governors, and he does work that way, as Jeremiah's ministry will see as God will send the Babylonians upon the land of Judah to carry out God's judgment against them. So Jonadab or Jehonadab, same same guy, two different names. He he allies himself with Yehu, the the king of the north. That's the that's we're rewinding the the account there for oh about oh that's what I got eight forty one in my Lutheran study Bible. So the two hundred plus years before that's when when Jonadab is on the scene, and this is kind of a- ambiguous. And maybe we can talk about this later when we get toward the end of the text, Pastor Andrews. But at, at least it seems that Jonadab. And the Rechabites, they they're sympathetic to Israel. 
they, they don't seem to like Baal worship. Uh, the participation in, in Yehu's, you know, getting rid of that, I think is, is significant. It's kind of hard to tell where do they fall on the, the religious spectrum. I don't know that we ever see a clear picture one way or the other, whether they, I, I don't see that them being full-fledged worshipers of Yahweh, but they at least are, are sympathetic to them. So you, you get these these glimpses of the Rechabites throughout. The other place that stands out to me that I, I found was in 1 Samuel 15, where King Saul is told to go and destroy the Amalekites. Before he does that, he tells the Kenites, who apparently are dwelling among the Amalekites at the time, to go ahead and leave before before the Amalekites are destroyed. So again, you see these, these friendly relationships between the people of God in Israel and this group, the Kenites. And that's who's going to be used by the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah to preach to his own people this example of obedience to commandments. And we'll see that with what the Lord tells Jeremiah to do. He tells them to offer wine to drink. And I think we'll, we'll pick that up when we get to the actual encounter between Jeremiah and the Rechabites. Let's talk about a little bit this the setting that Jeremiah gives. And we're going to have to to try to work through these names a little bit, Pastor Andrews. These are some of the the strangest names I think that I've encountered so far in the book of Jeremiah. There's there's a lot of them. So let, let's talk about who, who are some of these people, if we know anything at all. In verse three, we meet Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah. We've got a, a Habat, oh boy, Habazaniah, there we go, and his brothers. Sounds like they're all Rechabites. Is there anything more that we can say about any of those folks? You know, we take a class at the seminary, right, on That's pronouncing right. names in the Bible. <laughs> The and, only... and that class is to say, say it confidently, and that's that. <laughs> right. Just say it like you know it and move on, and nobody, nobody will say anything different. So, um, they they do strike us as being, well, Jeremiah's name dropping, which does, it puts a historical context around things, so there is benefit to that. Uh, we talk about that, too, in the New Testament, the epistles, as, you know, Paul will name various people that others in the church know. And so there's connections here. But yeah, a lot of this is unknown to us. So Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, this is not Jeremiah the prophet, you know, the one who we are talking our way through here right now. There is another um, Jeremiah mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 24 that would have been around at this time. So it's possible it's him. He is the son of uh, somebody named Libna, his daughter's name is Hamutal, and she is the one who's going to give birth to um, a baby boy named Mataniah. And Mataniah, when he grows up, is going to get renamed by Nebuchadnezzar Zedekiah. So Zedekiah, Mataniah, the grandson to this Jeremiah, perhaps, is a brother to Jehoiakim. So Jehoiakim's already a puppet king. He gets taken you know, out of the picture here. Nebuchadnezzar then takes Zedekiah and places him on the throne. So Je Jehoiakim dies. Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, becomes king. And very quickly, Nebuchadnezzar does away with Jehoiakim, puts his uncle at this point, because again, it's dad's brother, on the throne instead. So hey, who, who needs to watch daytime soap operas? <laughs> when you've got stories like this, uh, when you read God's word. So 
There is another Jazaniah that shows up in 2 Kings 25. It's hard to say as you read that text and you read this one if it's the same man or not. There's nothing that necessarily establishes it is, and I'd say nothing that establishes that it isn't. So um, we at least see that name. I don't know that we see the name Habazaniah elsewhere in Scripture. I don't recall that one. I, I think you would if you had. It's, it's certainly a, it certainly stands out as a, a quite the name. Uh, again, yeah, these these names sometimes, particularly the Old Testament, we just don't have the the same knowledge of exactly who they are, and and just because you see the name yeah, I, say Jeremiah does not mean it's the same one all the time. And in fact, this is a good example where we know it's not the same one. So it seems, at least in verse three, that we we get several of these names mentioned as examples of people who are of the house of the Rechabites. As you said, lending the historical nature to it. Jeremiah is not making this up. These are the people that he went and talked to and brought into this chamber where he was to address them. So talk a little bit about the setting where he he takes them. He takes them to the house of the Lord into the the chamber, one of the chambers there. What What's the setting we should be picturing here? Just before moving into that, as I'm, I'm reflecting on what we were just talking about, this would mean that the Rechabites actually married into the royal family. Um, as if we're saying Jeremiah is the one whose grandson would become king over Judah, like his daughter. Interesting. Anyway, uh, so the setting, um, you're looking at the Temple of Solomon still, because it's not destroyed until 587. So this is the first temple that Solomon built, uh, now at this point, over 300 years prior. And that temple has rooms all around it. So you've got the You've got the two primary rooms that when we talk about the temple, we usually talk about. You've got the, when you come in the entrance, you enter into the holy place, which is where you're going to have the table of the bread of the presence. It's where you're going to have the the lampstand that gives light to the temple. It's also where you're going to have the altar of incense. And then as you move through the curtain, you enter into the most holy place where you'll find the Ark of the Covenant, the very throne of God himself. But in Solomon's construction of the temple, you also now have rooms um, that are basically surround, I think it's just three exterior walls of that temple. The So the not the east wall that would be the entrance, but the south, west, and north walls have these rooms to them. And they're, they're used for different purposes. Some of them are used essentially as storerooms, supply rooms whereas others of them get used as living quarters. And that's the reference that we end up with here in verse 4. So they are the Rechabites are brought into the chamber, so the living quarters of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God. Um, so there we have a reference to a prophet. So Igdaliah um, called a man of God. The other times we see that typically points out it's a prophet we're talking about. Moses is called that in Deuteronomy 33. Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Shemaiah is a lesser known one in 1 Kings 12. Elisha gets called that in 2 Kings chapter 4. I mean, the only one that we normally ourselves don't consider a prophet that gets called that would be David in 2 Chronicles 8. But, but the scriptures use that language of him too. And several other unnamed prophets are going to get that title. So the prophet, the prophet's family here, living in one of those temple chambers. And 
also another temple chamber living person would be this Maaseya, the keeper of the threshold. Uh, and so we've, we've now got multiple functions um, as you've got the prophet who speaks God's word. And then you've got this man whose job it basically is to allow people to either come or go from the temple. I don't know if we want to quite view him as being like a bouncer, but it almost seems like that's his job, doesn't it? I was thinking I would rather be the, a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Might be a might be what we could call him a doorkeeper in the house of of the Lord. Perhaps is is Maasaiah's job. It is. I mean, I tell you the, these names, even though we can't always pin down precisely who they were. I, I do find it important at least to to talk about them like this and to get a, a fuller picture of Jeremiah's context. And particularly here, what I find fascinating is that you've got this Igdaliah who is called the man of God. On, on multiple occasions, Jeremiah will face off against the false prophets. And we know that the false prophets plagued him throughout his ministry. Hananiah back in chapter 28 really stands out in that regard. And there are plenty of other unnamed ones as well. But to see here Igdaliah named a man of God, I think gives at least some reminder to us that Jeremiah is not entirely alone here that there are other faithful Judahites, certainly, and even other faithful men of God who do proclaim the word of the Lord, who are who have not sold out to falsehood. And I think that's, I mean, I, I think that's worth at least just keeping in mind with this Igdaliah that not everybody, not everybody is believing falsehood. There are some faithful people remaining in Israel at this time. And I, I think that's, we saw it earlier. I'm trying to find it now. I think it, there it is. Chapter 26, there was another prophet by the name of Uriah who prophesied faithfully like Jeremiah did. He was put to death, unlike Jeremiah. Uh, but it's it's just, a I think, a helpful reminder to see that here. So we've got this context set. They're in the temple of the Lord in this chamber. Jeremiah is about to address the Rechabites, and we're going to see how the Lord will use this as an example to preach to his people. We'll pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO, talking Jeremiah chapter 35 with Pastor Steve Andrews. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, July 16th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 35 verses 1 to 19 with Pastor Steve Andrews. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were digging into the first part of chapter 35, finding out who the Rechabites are and some of these other players in the account that Jeremiah has. Jeremiah, to set that scene, is with the Rechabites in the chamber, in the house of the Lord. It's a pretty official scene. And now he's going to do what the Lord has told him to do. In verse five, he sets before these Rechabites 
these pitchers full of wine and cups. So there's quite a bit of wine here that we're talking about and things to drink from. And the command is, go ahead and drink, drink the wine. And they say, no, we're not going to do that. And they go into a bit of a, a discourse as to why they're not going to do that and, and what else goes along with it. So let's let's start digging into this, this scene, Jeremiah asking them to, to drink wine and they say, no, help us to, to see what's going on here in this interaction. Right. So one more thing in that scene, in that setting, as we saw in verse four, you've got the sons of Hanan, you've got Maaseah, the keeper of the threshold. What are they all doing there? I think we'd look at them as being witnesses to what's about to transpire, that Yahweh is not just setting this up so that Jeremiah the prophet has an interaction with this group of people, but in order, as you mentioned, it kind of as an object lesson, there have to be witnesses that can can attest to what Jeremiah says as he uses this to inform the people near the the end of the chapter. So as a part of that setting, yes, we've got all of these groups, well, groups, but we've got the the group of the Rechabites. We've got the the individuals who are faithful members serving in the Lord's house. And we have the opportunity for a bit of a feast. I mean, food's not really mentioned here, just wine. But I think if you you came into our context today, had a bunch of adults sitting down around in a room and he just offered them wine, you really wouldn't hear a lot of complaining that people would, you know, pretty much happily oblige to, to take a drink that you offer to them. But that's the opposite of what we see. These Rechabites refuse. They turn down this, this offer. And then we get to learn, and you read that in the opening, we get to learn about a little bit of their own family history, I guess we would call it. Um, we have the idea in verse six that Jonadab, son of Rechab, our father, and I take that as like a, a forefather, an ancestor for them, because it's been a couple hundred years probably. He has instructed his descendants after him to keep this basically family pledge that they won't drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever that they won't build homes, that they'll live in tents instead. And they've kept that instruction. You know, they've refrained from wine for a couple hundred years, which is not not an easy task because there's not a whole lot of other things to drink in that culture at the time. Uh, you've got pro- pretty much wa- yeah. wine and water. But they honored their father in, in doing the thing that he he asked of them. And let's, I mean, let's just get through this whole lifestyle and then maybe talk a little bit about it. So their father, Jonadab, son of Rechab, he's set this like way of life. This is what our family looks like. Our family doesn't drink wine, which as you said, I think would have been a surprising thing for the people witnessing this interaction between Jeremiah and the Rechabites. Wait, you don't want wine? Why not? Let's talk about that. That that would have seemed strange then and now. So that's that's part of it. The other part of the, the way of life is they, and I think you mentioned this, they're, they're, uh, they're tent dwellers. They they move around. Nomads, that's the word I was looking for. They're nomadic. What's what's going on with, with the idea of being nomads, not settling down, not planting anything? You know, I don't have a whole lot to to add to that myself. I mean, it is a way of life, and there are there are people groups both back in the ancient Near Eastern culture, and I think that you'd argue there's still some nomadic tribes in the world today. Um, it shows 
less of a dependence on civilization, uh, perhaps a closer knit together community uh, or a stress of family, uh, a reliance upon perhaps, and you mentioned, you alluded to this earlier that we don't know their, their religious beliefs, but perhaps a reliance upon the provision of your God rather than the provision of your own hands. Yeah, it's it's hard to to know for sure. We just don't get that specific text about about some of those things. But their their way of life, I think we can say this that the way of life that's described here does stand at least in some contrast to the people of Judah who do live in cities and towns and who do drink wine. And so these Rechabites stand out. And here they are offered the opportunity to go against what they've always done, particularly in the matter of drinking wine. And they say, no, we're not going to do that. We want, we want to keep that in mind. They do, they do give this caveat toward the end in verse 11 that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he's been threatening. And so we are living in Jerusalem right now. But I think they, it sounds to me like they're saying that as a way of saying, don't mistake our presence in Jerusalem right now for some kind of going against this way of life that we've we've pledged ourselves to given to us by our father we're we're still the Rechabites. we're still the tent dwellers we're still the the teetotalers I, I mean is that the way you take verse 11 yeah i would agree with you i mean they so king nebuchadnezzar has come up against jerusalem he's come up against judah before right so in second kings chapter 24 verse 1 during the days of this current king jehoiakim which lasted a good 11 years he came up against judah then at some point and jehoiakim pledges at that point to serve nebuchadnezzar and that lasts for three years before he rebels against the king and so the question here could be okay is this is this prior to jehoiakim's allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, or is this in the after effect of that? Because after he rebels, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, actually the, the second Kings text says Yahweh sends bands of Chaldeans to attack. Um, it's probably latter, probably in that rebellion phase, but either way, what's happened is they were living nomadically in the land of Judah and the attackers came. And so they feared for their lives. It was either stay out in the wilderness and get slaughtered or take refuge. And so they are taking refuge in Jerusalem. There's not actually anything in verse 11 that would indicate to us that they gave up their tents. They could be pitched up in their tents in just one little corner of Jerusalem while they wait for a safe, safe travel back outside of the city walls. Yeah, I think that I think that's a helpful helpful reminder there, and a helpful way of looking at the verse. Almost like they, you know, they they've been invited by Jeremiah into the temple chamber here to have wine, and it's it's almost like they're seeing this. Hold on a second, Jeremiah. You may think that our living in Jerusalem means we're giving up on this. We're not. We we are still. I mean, and I think you're right. You know, we're presumably dwelling in tents in Jerusalem, and we're not going to have wine. We're only here for protection from Nebuchadnezzar, but we're still faithful to what our father has given. Now, in terms of this lifestyle that the Rechabites have, that they choose to continue to follow, even here in Jeremiah chapter 35, it's probably worth a couple of minutes here to talk about Pastor Andrews. Is this way of life, is this text holding this way of life up as an example for Christians 
to follow? Is is this text saying, hey, you should be like the Rechabites, don't drink, live in tents? Can I say yes and no? <laughs> so, <laughs> so on the first hand, I'm going to go with the no first. Um, you don't need to live in a tent to be faithful. You don't need to abstain from wine to be faithful. That's not the part that is being upheld for us to see as the example of what faithfulness means. They have a commandment from their father, not, you know, we would talk about our father as we pray the Lord's Prayer, not talking about Yahweh. This is their, you know, honor your father and your mother, fourth commandment kind of thing. They have a commandment from their father not to do these things, and they have been faithful to that commandment. Where I was saying yes before was you had mentioned um, the the idea here that they had basically a chance to stand out, that they were offered this drink and they re- refused it. And the people witnessing that would have been like, well, what, why aren't you taking the wine? Why not? What's wrong? And, and that became for them an opportunity to share of themselves to share who they are, to share what they, what, what they live by. And that's the part that I think we are as Christians being called to imitate or emulate in the sense that as Christians, we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Uh, that word holy can mean perfect, but it also means set apart. We are to set, be set apart for the Lord. We are to stand out. And there are things that our neighbors do in our community around us that we just don't do. And so when they, when they offer us the opportunity to join them in something that we know we cannot do, we, we turn it down. And that's the opportunity for us, like the Rechabites then share their story. It's the opportunity for us to share the hope that we have within us. So that's my yes and no response for you. Well, I, I think I think you're getting to the heart of what's going on. So we would be we would not be taking the text correctly to use the Rechabites as an example of don't drink any wine and you must dwell in tents as that's what's being held up as as good. That's not what's being held up as good about the Rechabites. And and to be fair, we haven't read the rest of the text yet. What will be held up as good among the Rechabites is the fact that they obey the command that's been given to them. That's going to be the point of comparison is that uh, do you obey the command that's been given? Here, the command that the Rechabites have been given, it comes from their father. So this is, you know, this is the fourth commandment issue in that sense. And it's going to be compared to the, the way that the people of Judah don't obey the command that they've been given from the Lord. So we want to, and again, it's, it's, I think it's a fairly simple point, but it is important to make sure we understand what's going to be the point of comparison so that we don't apply this example in a in an inappropriate way, in a way that's not intended. In in fact, Pastor Andrews, this this actual text comes up in the apology of the Augsburg Confession. And and if I can, I'm gonna read a little bit here because I think this Go is just it. amazing. This is this is in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. It's article 27, which is on monastic vows, and and the the confessors apparently were answering an objection from the Roman Catholics of the day that said the Rechabites would be an example of monastic vows, and and the reformers, the confessors say no, you're misreading the text, and this is this is how again the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 27, this is paragraph 61 from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions from CPH. This is how how they interpret this text. And I think it fits right in line what we're talking about. When the Rechabites are praised, it is necessary to point out that they have observed their custom, not because they believed, A, they merited the forgiveness of sins by it, or 
B, that the work was itself a justifying service, or C, that it was a service by which they obtained eternal life instead of by God's mercy for the sake of the promised seed. Instead, their obedience is praised because they had their parents' command. One of God's commandments relates to this, honor your father and your mother. I just I find it I find it fascinating that a, that a text like Jeremiah thirty five actually shows up in the Lutheran confessions. So much of, of this we've been exploring and, and saying the Rechabites, where do we find them in Scripture? And and of all places, it shows up in our Lutheran confessions as an example of obedience to father and mother, and not an example of making up your own work to somehow merit righteousness, which I think fits in very well with what we've been saying about how this is going to be applied. So Pastor Andrews, anything more on on those verses before we read the rest of the text and see how Jeremiah uses this? I mean, you've got the side conversations that could be had. The Israelites themselves have lived in tents for a a long part of their history uh, as they wandered through the wilderness. They still remember that every year as they celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or Tents. Um, as they remember God's provisions for them in that season of their history. Um, you mentioned, the uh, again, the idea of, of drinking wine and that we are not teetotalers. Uh, and, and we see that, right? Uh, we probably go to the reference of the, the miracle, Jesus' first miracle at Cana, where he takes and he makes wine. If God did not want us to drink wine, he probably wouldn't have been making wine. If God didn't want us to drink wine, he probably wouldn't have used it as the, the, you know, the, the common thing, the tangible thing in the Lord's Supper to go along with the bread as we take Christ's body and blood together with the bread and the wine. So, yeah, we've got these illustrations here, but they are they're illustrations of a bigger thing as we're, we're discussing. It's, it's the idea of faithfulness, not so much the individual tents and, and cups of wine thing. All right. So let's see how Jeremiah uses this. This is now picking up the text in verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept and they drink none to this day for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them, and then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. That's through the end of Jeremiah chapter 35. So, Pastor Andrews, let's just make sure we we nail down this main point of what Jeremiah is preaching in using the example of the Rechabites. What's that main point that he wants to get through to the people of Judah? 
That's a good question for us to look at because we've spent so much time on the rest, right? On all the yeah. names and the people and the history where the point itself of the chapter is very simple. This people is faithful to the instruction that was given to them once, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And yet here you are, God's people, a holy people, and he has instructed you again and again and again and again and again. And yet you don't listen. So we've got a faithful group being used as an illustration to show Judah how they are not being faithful to the one who is father to them. Yeah, and so, I mean, in that sense, it's almost a, I don't know if shaming is quite the right word for it, but he's holding up the Rechabites. Look what they did in a, a relatively unimportant matter. You know, I mean, how easy would it have been to simply say, you know what? Jonadab didn't know what he's talking about. Wine tastes great. I like building a house. I'm just going to do that. You know, in the grand scheme of things, that seems pretty simple and and perhaps even understandable. Jeremiah says, look, they didn't do that. They kept the, the promise that their father put to them. You people of Judah, you've got the word of the Lord and he's given it to you persistently and you refuse over and over to obey him. I mean, it's just that argument from the lesser to the greater to show Judah just how great their sin is. I think it's, it's worth a few moments to talk about this matter of the sending persistently. We've heard this before in Jeremiah. He brings it up here again, that Jeremiah is not the first prophet to speak these words to the people. The Lord's been very persistent in speaking to his people this matter of, of command, repentance, faith. You know, I think we we sometimes may fall into the trap as we read scripture just because of the, the books of the Bible and the way that they're named, right? We've got the five major prophets and we have the 12 minor prophets where we get to this point of thinking that the prophets weren't really that common of a thing. But if you think back and you go to the account where Elijah is about to be taken up into heaven and Elisha is clinging to him. He just won't leave Elijah alone. And as they travel from, from one location to the next, the sons of the prophets greet them in each location to tell Elisha, don't you know that Yahweh is going to take your master away from you today? And so there, there are a lot more prophets than we, we tend to acknowledge. Uh, even the, the queen Jezebel I mentioned earlier, who was uh, a fan of Baal worship, she slaughtered the prophets of Yahweh. And we have this account of Obadiah having faithfully hidden a hundred prophets. So she slaughtered, we don't know how many, but he saved a hundred of them. So there are, there are prophets of God all over the place at various points in history. And God has been using these prophets to speak to his people and to call his people to repent. And he's been doing it again and again. He's been doing it for centuries. He gave the Northern kingdom of Israel I don't know the official number. What is it? Like 250-ish years of, of patience as they were never faithful to him after the split. Uh, Jeroboam, their first king, set up the, the pagan worship sites in, in the northern city of Dan, the southern city of Bethel with the golden calves to worship. Uh, they didn't learn their lesson before. And they do that all the way through until God finally decides to use Assyria to judge them, and they're gone. Uh, and God has granted his his patience to the Judaites now for even longer than that, as we're talking, you know, probably mid-900s, and here we are now around 600. So it's been 
you know, 350 years or something like that for, for Judah. And yet they are still persisting. They are still going after their other gods instead of serving and entrusting Yahweh alone. And so he's, he's shown a lot of patience. He has sent a lot of servants. And as you've, you've seen elsewhere in the book of Judah, not only do they not, not, not Judah, sorry, the book of Jeremiah, not only do they not listen to the prophets always, they oftentimes harm them. Uh, And this is something Jesus is going to pick up on as he weeps over the city of Jerusalem in the New Testament, calling Jerusalem uh, the city that that would stone the prophets, um, those that God would send to it to speak his word. We see the patience of the Lord, no doubt, and the persistence of sending the prophets. But we also see in this text, as we've seen elsewhere in Jeremiah, that the Lord's patience does eventually come to an end, that the day does come when when judgment comes. And the prophet mentions that here again, verse 17, the Lord tells his people in no uncertain terms, the judgment that I've spoken to you already, it is going to come. And that's that's an important warning for us to keep in mind still. It is. And I mean, not just in the historical context of this, but even for our day, right? God God has said that he will send his son back to us. The second coming of Jesus Christ is one of those final promises of scripture that we still attach our hopes to. We still cling to that word and that promise. And and we often wonder, you know, why why has God not sent Jesus back yet? Soon seems like it should have been a long time ago. But the Lord is for his own reason and in his own timing, he is still patiently enduring with this fallen creation and with us broken sinners. And that time is is running out. The, the patience of the Lord will come to its end. And at that time, his judgment will come upon all of creation. And so we, we know that and that gives us urgency to our message. It's a judgment that is unavoidable, which is what you were just referencing here from verse 17. This judgment was declared by God, directly to Jehoiakim's great-grandfather, um, Manasseh, in essence. I, I, I don't, maybe it wasn't actually said to Manasseh. It was said to Josiah, um, who was, again, the faithful king, and Josiah was spared from it because of his faithfulness, because he repented as he saw what was happening, as he saw the, the pagan worship and that they were abandoning God. Josiah repented, and God permitted him to live out the rest of his days. But even then, in 2 Kings 24, before Jehoiakim's king, it's already been announced this judgment is coming, and God is not going to be swayed from it. It it will be time. Let's talk very briefly about those last two verses where Jeremiah turns to the Rechabites. We have just about two minutes here, Pastor Andrews, and I know we, we want to maybe wrap things up as well, but what is the, the promise that's made to the Rechabites at the very end of this text? And then again, just help us to, to wrap things up this morning as, as we consider chapter 35. What a promise this is. And I'm, it's hard for us to say exactly what it is that God is promising here through the words of Jeremiah. So we've got the judgment now spoken to Judah. Jeremiah turns to the Rechabites who have been faithful in in the little that their father gave them to do. And God speaks to them, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father, thus says Yahweh, 
Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. So they receive this wondrous promise from God here. Uh, it's a promise that mirrors that fourth commandment. We've talked about the fourth commandment before in the, today. And, you know, we think of Exodus chapter 20. Um, the New Testament writers pick up on this. It's the first command with a promise, honor your father and your mother that you may, your, that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. So it could be that this promise is a short-term promise in the sense of Judah is about to be, you know, within a generation's time, destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be torn down. Everything will be carried off to Babylon. But the Rechabites, because of their faithfulness in this, will remain in the presence of Yahweh, that he will keep them. He will keep their, their family from destruction. Um, they will go on. Is Do we take it as more than that? Do we take this as a promise of salvation, that they will always stand before God as being a reference even to paradise? Uh, that one I don't know, um, but that would be quite a a wondrous promise too. And and as we talked about them before as being not part of the kingdom of Israel, that we would talk about them in New Testament language then as the Gentiles. And we know this is true of the Gentiles, that the good news of Jesus Christ has been shared beyond just the nation. It's been shared to all nations, um, which means the good news is for the Rechabites as well. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 35, verses 1 to 19. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, comments on the series, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app and send a message to us through the open mic feature. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.